Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our Friday meeting. Um, Steve, take my head off a little bit. Thank you. <laughs> it's a little bit of technical problems. I think we, we had a shorter person here before me. So uh, welcome. Uh, I hope you're having a safe day, a little bit cold. I saw some snowflakes, which is really rather remarkable uh, before, before November. But I guess that tells us a little omen of things to come in some way. Um, I have a couple of uh, announcements. One, one is um, a bit of a public service for one of our team members. Uh, Dr. Rob Parker, who's one of our intensivists, uh, uh, had a mishap this past week. Uh, he lives up in Granby, and, and unfortunately, his uh, everyone's safe. His three kids and, and, uh, and the two kids and the, and the four dogs and his wife are safe. But uh, his house burned down completely, including the, his cars, the garage. Uh, uh, it was in the afternoon. Fortunately, he's safe, and, and, uh, and he's been taken care of. Uh, we did put up a, a GoFundMe campaign, uh, and if uh, people are interested, we can send that link in support of Rob. He's doing well. He's really appreciative of what everyone is doing, but I just want to make sure that you know that that's available. If you are able to contribute, that would be fantastic uh, uh, for one of our team members. Head of, you know, he's one of the intensivists here at Connecticut Children's. Uh, the other thing is, uh, obviously, John is going to share some uh, some concerning news about COVID-19, and uh, I just want to urge all of you to, to be safe. Uh, this is uh, really, really important. Uh, we, we can lower our guard. This is a time where we need to limit uh, our gatherings in the hospital, uh, in your units, uh, in your clinics, and certainly for Halloween, you know, just be real careful. This is not a time where we need to get together. Uh, John and I are getting a lot of calls of people who were sick and perhaps positive. Um, we've seen some uptick of cases in the hospital. So it's really uh, all around us. Now, Connecticut is doing far better than the, the Midwestern states, which I think John maybe will, will mention later today. But uh, I think the next two, three months are going to be challenging. Now, we can make it through. We did. We made it through in, in uh, March, April, and May, which was very difficult. We know a lot more about this virus now, and we can protect ourselves. So, so hang in there. Be, be optimistic that we'll make it through. Uh, March, spring will come and hopefully vaccine will be available. John probably will give us an update on that as well. Now, today we have two topics. John will give us an update on COVID-19, everything about it. And then we're, we have uh, uh, some discussions about asthma. And uh, the, uh, the, we have two speakers. We have uh, Jessica Hollenbach, who's, who's listed here. And, and Jess, uh, may, some of you may or may not know her. Jess is director of, of the Asthma Research Center at Connecticut Children. She is uh, an outstanding member of our team. Uh, she's one of our faculty members. Uh, she is a, a UConn graduate uh, and uh, is, is a PhD. Her PhD was not initially in asthma, it was in molecular biology. Very smart, was at Yale for a while and came back and has been working in asthma now for a number of years. And uh, she oversees the program. She's uh, responsible now for the Easy Breathing and Asthma Management Program for primary care clinicians. So you might have seen her in, in that arena and also Building Bridges, which is a school-based asthma program. Uh, she is the director of our asthma research program. So uh, we're really proud to have her here. And I know she's gonna give some uh, really important information. We also asked Dr. Mel Collins, one of our pulmonologists to uh, join for the question and answer session. Uh, if people have specific medical questions about asthma, uh, she will be able to answer. So thank you, uh, Mel, for joining us as well. Uh, so without further ado, I'm gonna ask uh, Dr. Schreiber to uh, take it on and uh, John, give us the, uh, the update on everything you know and everything you don't know about COVID-19. Thank you, John. Thank you, Juan, um, and good morning to Connecticut and uh, those of you in other states. Um, you can move the slides, uh, Elizabeth, please. Um, I, I apologize in advance and that I'm not gonna tell you what you wanna hear today. Um, I'm just gonna share the facts of what's going on with COVID this week. And then in our discussion, as always, uh, your questions are very important to us. So uh, as Juan said, you know, unfortunately we're gonna need to fasten our seatbelts. Um, the next three or four months are going to be challenging, uh, but we all know what to do. Uh, I don't think uh, there's anything unique. We, we know we have to exercise good public health uh, measures and that we will get this under control, but um, we actually have to do that. And, uh, but fasten your seatbelt, we are going to be challenged the next few months. Next. You can go to the, yeah, thank you. So, so uh, amazingly, um, not something I would ever thought I would report to you. Um, we're probably gonna have 100,000 new cases a day shortly in the United States. It's just remarkable. Um, you know, I, I try to stay out of politics, but um, I think uh, at this point, it seems like on the national level, we've sort of thrown up our hands and uh, we're just going to kind of let this rip. The challenge with that, as I, as I told you last week, 
is once this gets out of control, the medical system becomes overwhelmed and uh, triaging happens, the death rate goes up like Italy uh, back in the early days. And so uh, this is not a place we wanna be as a country. And, and since we travel, it's not about 50 different states, it's about a single country. So unfortunately we're heading to 100,000 cases a day shortly. We're in the 80s now. Next. Now the death rate, um, although not great, it's about a thousand a day, which is just huge death rate, but nevertheless, it's gonna go up. And uh, it's lower now than it was during the peak for several reasons. First, it's a younger demographic that's getting infected. We'll show you some of those data. Second, we know how to treat it better than we did. And third, our hospitals are not yet overwhelmed. So I think um, we all anticipate in the public health arena that the deaths will rise in the coming weeks. And remember, it tends to lag the new cases. So in about two weeks, this is gonna start shooting up, unfortunately. Next. Now, um, remarkably, uh, if you look at what's happening in the Midwest, um, these are incredible numbers. These is the you know, 115 new cases per 100,000 per day in South Dakota, North Dakota. I mean, these are small states, about under a million. And these are probably among the highest infectious rates in the world right now. Um, and uh, if you look at the data, why is this happening? Well, it's about a 45% mass compliance in those states and um, public health measures by both governors have been resisted. And um, the hospitals are now full and this is going to become very challenging for those states. I don't think it was really understood when you get out of the politics, this is not about politics, it's about the math of a virus and it's our value. And, and then the number of people who will get sick or die. It's just mathematics. And I think, unfortunately, many of our politicians have not understood that. This is not a political issue. It's a mathematical viral issue. Now, the big worry really is Wisconsin, which has a much larger population and a lot to lose there, and particularly Milwaukee and Madison, where most of the people live. The, the epidemic in Wisconsin is centered in the north currently, but creeping south. And once it gets into Milwaukee and Madison, there are gonna be some real challenges uh, in controlling it. Next. Um, North Dakota is a case study in unmanaged uh, a public health outbreak. And I think if you were gonna do the Great Barrington plan of just sort of let it rip and try to protect the vulnerable, this is what you do. Um, it's a teeny state in terms of population, over a thousand new cases a day, the death rate's shooting up. It seems very low, but it's now in the 20s daily for a state of under a million people. And in fact, the death rate per capita in North and South Dakota is the highest in the world currently. Next. And you can see this is South Dakota data. Now some of the spin, uh, and this just uh, again gets to the point, this is not about politics, it's mathematics. Some of the spin is, oh, it's all the new testing we're doing and this isn't really new cases. That's just not correct. Uh, this is the testing that's being done in South Dakota, and those are the hospitalizations, which are showing you these are new cases of ill people going to the hospital. So uh, it's not correct. Oh, sure, we're testing more, but uh, the fact of the matter is it's a brutal and uncontrolled epidemic in the Dakotas right now. And as I mentioned, the per capita death rate in the Dakotas is now the highest in the world. Next. Um, New England, as we know, during the summer, because of a lot of hard work in the spring, we did well. Unfortunately, uh, we are entering a resurgence phase. It's starting in Massachusetts and Connecticut. Uh, those are our uh, numbers, the seven-day average of new cases per 100,000, which far exceeds 10, which is the uh, area in which we actually allow travel in and out of Connecticut. We're beyond that now. So uh, there's some, shall we say, um, uh, difficulty in understanding some of our travel regulations right now because the fact of the matter is we exceed some of the states surrounding us. Maine and Vermont, although increasing rapidly, have it under control still. Ditto with New Hampshire. Rhode Island has a problem and uh, this has been going on all summer but now it's accentuated. So Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island are in robust resurgence currently. Next. And um, the demographics different. So this is data from Massachusetts showing if you look in the April, May time period, it was mostly old people. 
other age groups than young. And that's why the death rate was so high. Now the blue line are showing young people um, in the zero to 19 age group, which is now the largest demographic getting infected in Massachusetts. The challenge is gonna be when that spills over into the nursing homes and into the, into the older community, that's when the death rate's gonna go up. And it's inevitable with this high rate of community spread that that's going to happen. But this is centered in young adults currently in Massachusetts. Next. Connecticut, um, these are data, I think, from yesterday. It's hard to keep up, actually. Um, I kept updating it every day. But um, uh, we're at 800 new cases a day, maybe headed to 1,000 shortly. Uh, and I, you show sure, a rate of 17 new cases per 100,000. Now, on the state side, it says, I think, 12 or 13. But these are data I gathered. Uh, more nationally, and I, I think these are probably correct. I think we're underestimating a little bit on the DPH website. Either way, we have a very robust resurgence going on. And, and to Juan's very important point, we're all tired, but now is not the time to throw up your hands. Now is the time to say, I know what to do. I know what to tell all my people to do. I know what to tell my family to do, and we're going to do it. And we're gonna get back to where we were in July and we're going to be able to reopen things safely and we're going to have a good winter here. We can do it, but it's gonna take some hard work uh, to do this. And once it gets up in the thousands, the ability for us to control it without lockdown becomes difficult. So better to control it now without lockdown if we can. Um, and so we'll see where this goes, but right now uh, we're not going in the right direction. And I apologize in telling you news you don't wanna to hear today. Next. Um, there's been a dramatic increase in COVID hospitalizations in Connecticut, centered New Haven, Hartford, and the New London uh, and Fairfield area, pretty much where we know previously, very little in Litchfield uh, County. And so, uh, but we are, we are starting to fill our hospitals again, and we're going to need to watch this closely. Um, and as I said, now we know what to do, and we need to tell our public and our families and everyone who's not in healthcare what they need to do. And if they don't want to hear it, it's okay. It's okay for us to tell them and to dive in and say, we can control this, but not if you don't wear your mask. Next. Um, this is the Connecticut Travel Advisory Map. Now, Massachusetts is now listed, so I have an exemption letter when I commute to Hartford uh, next week. Um, but the reality is Connecticut's the same as Massachusetts in terms of new cases per 100,000. Not as bad as Boston area, but overall statewide. Um, so, you know, uh, this country, you know, the whole map's red, basically, except a few states in the Northeast. So um, once again, if you can, this holiday season, it's time to do Zoom and, um, and chat with people online and get through this holiday season without creating family outbreaks. And I think that would be the advice I would give. As difficult as it is, trust me, I would love to get in the car and drive to Maryland for Thanksgiving and cook a turkey together, but we're not going to do it. So... Um, uh, that's my advice for those of you as we head into the holidays. Next. Um, this is interesting in that these are the percent positives um, in the last few days of different states. Now, Connecticut was running around 1% or less in the summer. We're up to 3% now. And remember, that's probably two weeks old. We're probably around 5 or 6% now. And, um, and that's not good. That means a lot more people are infected and you're picking it up as you test. Massachusetts is probably the same. It's probably three to 5%. But you can see some of these states are, are you know, Pennsylvania, for example, um, not doing so well. And I didn't show you the Dakotas. They're up in the 30s, uh, which because it's burning through the population very quickly. So we're going up in Connecticut. It's still, however, reasonable compared to much of the rest of the country. The trick is to keep it that way. Next. Now let's get to some updates on treatment. Um, this is a monoclonal antibody trial, uh, the Lilly monoclonal, um, and they gave it to uh, outpatients to see if they could reduce uh, illness and viral load. It's a phase two trial, and it was New England Journal like yesterday, I think. And um, the reality is it didn't do much. Um, so it lowered viral load modestly. And um, Lilly had this monoclonal also being used in very sick COVID patients, and they actually terminated that study because it didn't work. So, you know, I've mentioned this to you before, but in general, antibody therapies um, are great prophylaxis, but for therapy, they tend to not be as effective. And so again, I, my personal belief is that 
these antibody therapies will be useful, but probably as prophylaxis, particularly in people where vaccination won't work. And that might be our immunocompromised population who might get hyperimmune globulin or hyperimmune monoclonals to COVID and then they would be immune for 90 days or six months and they would get that periodically. So I think there's a strong role for these antibodies, but probably not in treatment. Next. Um, this, this is uh, looking at IL-6 receptor blockade, which we thought was very, very promising. Uh, this just came out in the New England Journal as well. And um, using this particular IL-6 receptor blocker uh, didn't do anything in terms of uh, improving clinical worsening, um, oxygenation, and mechanical ventilation or death. So these are very sick patients. And perhaps, again, maybe this needs to be used much earlier in the course, and it will have efficacy. But if you're already very sick, it doesn't seem to do much. Next. Now let's talk about, I, I, by the end of this, when vaccines are out, I, I really want our community to understand um, the various vaccines because we're gonna have some hard decisions to make as we recommend these to our peers and to families. But remember, the, the um, major target, if you look at this and you see the COVID virus in blue coming in and it binds to the ACE2 receptor on the alveolar cell or any infected cell, we're targeting blockading of that initial binding, um, blocking the spike protein in its various permutations from binding initially to the human cells. So that's really where the vaccine targets are. Once it gets in the infected cell, it's processed um, and chopped up and then there's presentation to T cells and um, you get uh, augmented B cell responses. And the goal is to have some antigen get into the cell but not be infectious and then be processed and get that T cell and antibody mediated immunity to the COVID virus, but obviously with it being non-viable. So it's important for us to understand this because once you get into the technology of some of the viruses, um, some, of the, some of the antiviral vaccines, it, it's important to see this mechanism. Next. So, so these are the various platforms. And I've shown this to you before, but again, I think it's gonna be critical for us to understand each platform of vaccine that the FDA is gonna say is okay to take. Now the spike protein um, is the target in general, um, and that, that uh, has been used for recombinant. Uh, I've mentioned to you before, Novavax and others have made recombinant spike protein. It's probably gonna work. You've got inactivated virus vaccines in China. I will show you some of that shortly. Um, I don't think a live attenuated vaccine is realistic, so we're not gonna look at D. I talked about recombinant spike protein. Then remember, you've got um, RNA vaccines, which is I, or I guess L down there, which is probably the one that's gonna be earliest licensed. And that uses RNA obtained uh, coding uh, for the spike protein. It goes into our bodies and we take it up and we make the protein in our cells. It's a novel way uh, to have to bypass producing virus and antigen, um, but it's new technology. It's not been used for any long-term vaccine in humans, and so there's some issues there. Um, and then uh, remember, there's a one where we're using an activated virus vector, which is adenovirus, and that's J. And and so and there's some concerns with that as well. And that viruses that are inactivated tend to be uh, very immunoreactive, and um, and you know, is that good for us or not long-term? We don't know. So next slide. Um, vaccine development, this is a normal vaccine development in non-pandemic times. You design and you preclinical studies, say you might look at the spike protein there. You do some animal modeling, show some toxicology and mammalian models, and then you would submit an IND to the FDA and you have about a three to five year process really fast, five to seven years it says here, as you go from phase one, which is really dose and toxicity, phase two, looking at the immune response and phase three efficacy, these are years. So if you look at the varicella vaccine, for example, you're talking a 15 year process um, that Merck uh, went through. And so um, that's normal. And, and there's a reason for this. And the reason is by the time you get to the end, you've got almost a decade of data looking at outcomes from the immunization, and you're able to really pretty confidently say the long-term outcomes are fine. There's not, you know, you, you can track every person with an adverse outcome, determine whether it's vaccine related, and you can really hone down safety and efficacy this way. Next. This is what we're doing currently. 
Um, the uh, vaccine development is enormously accelerated. We've gone through the animal modeling in mice and, and in monkeys. The IND has been submitted. We're compressing the phase one through three trials um, into several months. Uh, and then the regulatory overview will take four to six weeks. And we're talking about a um, 10 month to one and a half year process. So this is 10 times faster than the average vaccine development. Next. So what's the risk benefit of this? Obviously we're living through this. If we can get a vaccine that's effective and reduce community spread and control this pandemic, it's paramount. We need to reduce the morbidity and mortality. And, and, and we're worried about long-term morbidity in people who seem to have low level infections. And we wanna protect our vulnerable and get the death rate down and reopen the economy. It's obvious, it's a no brainer, but we do not fully understand the correlates of protection yet from this uh, pathogen. Vaccines may have long-term side effects that cannot possibly be measured in this timeline. The immunity seems to wane. So we do think that repeated immunizations will be required. And unfortunately, the political situation has reduced public confidence in immunization. So we're running into this knowing that the uh, ideal vaccine will be critical, but we have a lot of loose ends here. And um, us in the infectious disease and public health world worry about this. The last thing we wanna do is get a vaccine that works poorly or elicits negative side effects and reduce a compliance with any immunization. That would be the absolute last thing we would like to do. Next. So um, what do you worry about long-term? And this just came out, it's actually not been peer reviewed yet, but I always like to throw really early stuff uh, at the community here. And these individuals at Emory University found that sick individual with COVID-19 made autoantibodies. And it's their belief that the chronic COVID syndrome, and there are a lot of people now, it's sort of like chronic Lyme. I mean, they just don't get better and they don't feel well and they have low grade fevers and, and they, they're weak. And uh, in their belief, this is an autoimmune reaction. And you can see under the high CRP under B, it's the easiest one to see. Uh, there's a lot of autoantibodies made in these very sick people. And those who had low inflammatory response and didn't get very sick clinically tended not to make a lot of autoantibodies. So this is fascinating early work. Uh, we'll have to follow this up. It's not been peer reviewed yet, but it, it possibly explains why some people are getting a very chronic syndrome from their COVID infection. Next. And um, the science being applied, the good news to understand this infection um, is the best in history. It's quite remarkable. Next. Um, this, for example, uh, the, in this study, uh, which just came out in the cell, we're able to make stem cells into mini lungs and they differentiate into little alveoli. And then you can actually look at the COVID interaction with this mini alveoli and look at drug screens and uh, anti-inflammatories and all sorts of blocking agents and come up with new medicines to treat um, SARS-CoV-2 infection. It's quite remarkable. And these, these studies are moving ahead very quickly and will provide, I think, some great new treatments uh, for SARS-CoV-2 infection. Next. And finally, uh, here's another fascinating study looking at gene expression of people who are infected with SARS-CoV-2, but compared to um, other, uh, other in, uh, infections, including HKU5 as, as a bat uh, virus. And uh, so they're able to take the cells out from the host and then using CRISPR, which is clustered regularly interspaced short palindromic repeat sections of DNA that do DNA editing very efficiently. It's a whole nother talk to get into that, but they're able to do that and show what the host cells, what genes are turned on by infection in the host cells. So we actually have some shared genes that are turned on uh, with bats and others, and we have some unique genes turned on by SARS-CoV-2. This is clearly gonna help us understand the pathogenesis, very exciting data from Yale and MIT. So the, the science being applied is remarkable. Next. So, um, and by the way, we have the good, the bad, and the ugly in Italian there for you. Um, I don't speak Italian, but il buono is the good. And um, actually, il brutto is the ugly. I don't know why it's in the middle. And il cattivo is the bad. So the good, the bad, the ugly in Italian there. Um, we are in a nationwide resurgence um, in the Midwest, especially um, the absence of a national plan 
in my view, indicates that this will be an uncontrolled resurgence right now. We seem to be unwilling or unable to create the public health measures that are required, and they're not particularly strenuous. Um, physical distance and a mask, it's just not that big a deal, but we seem unwilling and unable to initiate those. We know, therefore, that we're going to strain the medical system across the United States, and mortality is going to go up. Uh, however, due to better treatment, a younger demographic, um, and uh, probably uh, also better infection control in some of our nursing homes, the death rate appears to be lower than the first rate, at least right now. As hospitals become stressed, however, and you, every ICU bed is filled, you begin to triage and the death rate goes up. And so that's happening in the Dakotas right now, and it's unfortunate. As I mentioned, we have incredible scientific advancements um, and very optimistic that we will have better interventions to prevent severe illness from this virus and at some point soon. And the vaccine work is moving ahead quickly. Um, and it's, in my opinion, likely the immunization will be available late this year, probably rolling out at healthcare providers and essential personnel first, and then the vulnerable elderly and others second, and then the larger population later in the spring, but we'll see. And it's, I believe we're gonna require multiple doses, perhaps annually, uh, because I think um, immunity appears to wane. Again, thank you. And I'm happy to turn it over to Jessica to talk about COVID and asthma. Thank you. Uh, thank you, John. That's great. And we'll have to figure out who is the el bono, el bruto, el cativo. And, and we'll maybe put pictures to that. <laughs> that was a great, great but, uh, slide. I'm the bono, okay? I've got, I, I claim the bono. Uh, uh, <laughs> right, I'll be el cativo. <laughs> so um, the, uh, just an update uh, from the, the state of Connecticut. We, we, we actually had uh, 1,200 cases in a single 24-hour period. And the the percentage, the positivity rate is six percent. So those are the the most up to date numbers. So what you you said has come to to light, John. So we have to be real careful. All right, let's move on now to uh, Dr. Hollenbach. If you can uh, tell us uh, about asthma and COVID nineteen. Looking forward to your presentation, Jessica. Go ahead. Sure. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, and good morning. Um, thank you for the invitation to present today about um, the state of asthma and COVID in children. And I'm really honored to have been invited to, to give this talk. I'm looking forward to the questions after. Um, <clears throat> right, so my objectives for today are to review what we already, what we currently know, and I emphasize current because everything is changing every day, uh, like, like Dr. Schreiber just, just pointed out. Um, what we know about the relationship between COVID-19 and asthma in children specifically. And then we'll uh, like to discuss uh, some asthma treatment recommendations uh, during this pandemic. Next slide, please. Um, so COVID-19 and asthma, what we know right now, state of the art, is that the CDC, WHO, Quad AI, ATS, and several other international organizations consider asthma a possible risk factor for COVID-19 morbidity and mortality. Um, and this is really based on, on, on quote unquote, on more on common sense rather than mounting evidence because of the fact that SARS-CoV-2 is a respiratory virus, asthma is a respiratory disease, therefore, a respiratory virus uh, would hypothetically uh, predispose somebody with asthma to increase mor morbidity or mortality. But a systematic, uh, a recent systematic review uh, that looked at whether asthma was associated with higher COVID-19 risk or severity in children, um, out of about 35 reports, only one report described asthma um, or recurrent wheeze as, as a real risk factor. Next slide. So there is a theoretical risk, again, that COVID-19 could trigger viral-induced asthma exacerbations. Um, again, there's no data to support or refute this theory, but in previous um, severe acute respiratory syndrome or SARS due to um, human coronavirus 229E or OC43, those were not associated with increased risk of exacerbations. We also know that seasonal coronaviruses are associated with annual asthma exacerbations, but these are less, less so than what's reported with, um, with influenza. And we also know that rhinoviruses are the most common viral trigger for asthma exacerbations. Uh, in previous SARS outbreaks, children with asthma were less susceptible to coronavirus infection, and this might have been due to increased hygiene measures and mask wearing. So really right now, to date, the literature is mixed on whether asthma in, in kids increases risk of either infection with COVID-19 or morbidity mortality due to, due to the virus. 
Next slide. So uh, a group that has been looking at um, 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 urban environment and childhood asthma, the Eureka group, uh, decided to look at their sample of about 300 children who have been enrolled in this study um, and, and look at what the association of respiratory allergy, asthma, and the expression of the ACE2 receptor is in this sample. Um, so they looked at this, the expression levels of ACE2 among children with and without asthma and with and without ATP. And you can see in figure A that it appears that in Eureka and these children um, enrolled in this study, that allergic sensitization is inversely related to the ACE2 uh, expression levels in nasal epithelial cells. Um, and that's indicated, uh, you can see in the x-axis, uh, that those who are IgE positive sensitized have lower uh, box and whisker plot expression of ACE2. That's the, red in, that's the red in the blue boxes compared to the gray in the black boxes. And then when they looked at, uh, and only children with asthma, they also saw a correlation or an association between ACE2, decreased ACE2 expression levels and higher sensitization levels uh, that you can see that are indicated by the high IgE sensitization box and whisker and um, the medium IgE sensitization. So really indicating that um, paradoxically, asthma might be protective um, as the ACE2 receptors lower is, is, is um, has required for SARS-CoV-2 recognition may be underexpressed in the lungs of atopic children. Next slide. Another group, um, so when, when then the, another group from New York Presbyterian Hospital and, and surrounding hospitals asked the question whether, um, is, whether asthma among hospitalized patients with COVID-19 and what, are, what were their related outcomes? And they wanted to know whether the underlying asthma was associated with, with poor outcomes. So the rationale for this was that um, as, we, as we know, asthma exacerbations are often triggered by viral respiratory infections, including again, many coronaviruses. And hospitalizations, as you all know, increase in seasons when viral illness, illnesses are common, such as this time of year when children return, uh, go back to school. And we see these, this phenomenon called, this, called the September asthma peak. There's also clinical data and, and animal models of SARS and MERS um, that do not suggest that asthma plays a role in severe disease. And so what this group did was they looked at uh, data from February 2020 uh, through May 7th, 2020. And um, they found that asthma was underrepresented in comorbidities uh, uh, compared with the prevalence in the general population. Overall, the prevalence of asthma among hospitalized patients in this cohort was about 13%, uh, but there was a higher prevalence, which is around 24% in the subset of children. And that was, um, that was akin to, the, to the, uh, a similar asthma rate in other hospitalized children in another hospital network in, 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 in New York City. And then you can see here that there was no differences in length of stay, readmission rates, intubation, death, or tracheostomy. There was also no difference in time to extubation or time to discharge. And so among hospitalized patients that are less than or equal to 65 with severe COVID, asthma diagnosis in this, in this uh, sample was not associated with worse outcomes. And this was regardless of age, obesity, or other high-risk uh, comorbidities. Next slide. Okay, so what about COVID-19 and asthma healthcare services utilization? What's going on? Next slide. So it looks like um, in, in a UK cohort that COVID-19 is not a driver of clinically significant viral disease and asthma. So this group from uh, Leicester, UK uh, examined what the extent of SARS-CoV-2 was identified in children who were admitted to a hospital with either viral disease and or asthma at the start of the 2020 school year. And so their school year began at the end of August and they looked at data uh, for about a month um, and here they show that in 2020, there were zero positive SARS-CoV-2 samples in children admitted to this uh, tertiary academic um, ED uh, with attacks of viral wheeze or asthma during the start of the school year. Next slide. 
what do asthma-related ED visits and hospitalizations look like? So what's going on? Um, this is really fascinating to me because um, as an as a asthma researcher, um, this has been the goal for decades now um, for those of us look at trying to implement programs, interventions, and clinical trials to improve asthma morbidity is to, is to decrease healthcare services utilization among, among children. And so when investigators from CHOP decided to examine asthma encounters before and after public health interventions were employed, and that's denoted by the dash line um, in the figure A that says March 17th, you can see that prior to uh, public health interventions and lockdowns, hospitalizations and outpatient visits uh, were very were high for, um, among, for asthma encounters. And then once lockdown and public health interventions uh, were, were employed, uh, there was an 83% decrease in hospitalizations, ED visits uh, for asthma, and a similar decrease in outpatient visits, with then a concomitant increase in video visits for, for asthma encounters. Um, and then I was able to pull some data quickly from our own, from our own uh, EPIC data and show a similar decrease in our own ED visits and hospitalizations for asthma at Connecticut Children's. So remember that September asthma peak that I mentioned earlier? So this is just a, a graph showing you the, this, uh, a very typical uh, um, yearly phenomenon that we see and are very familiar with when we, uh, when we look at, um, when after children go back to school, uh, it's uh, the beginning of September. It's, it's um, been shown that about 14 days or two weeks after the first day of school, um, children tend to... Uh, come to the hospital or ED with, with asthma exacerbations. And this has been shown repeatedly for several years now. So I'm putting this up because I'm curious to know whether we'll see this again this year. It's a little bit too soon to, to tell. Uh, when I looked at the data, it, it wasn't really uh, clear yet, but I'm, I'll be curious to see if this happens again. Next slide. Okay, so what also happened to asthma prescriptions and adherence to asthma therapy um, prior to and post uh, post uh, public health interventions. So again, the same group from CHOP on the left uh, looked at outpatient asthma prescriptions, um, pre and post uh, public health intervention. You can see there was really, there was really no difference um, in um, uh, uh, beta-2 agonists or inhaled corticosteroids or systemic steroid prescriptions. But when they looked at uh, um, now in figure B, uh, all systemic steroids among children who had at least one oral corticosteroid dose, there was a significant decrease and actually 83% decrease in systemic steroid um, courses after public health interventions were implemented in Philadelphia, indicating or suggesting that there, were less, there was less need for systemic steroids and therefore less, um, a less rate of asthma exacerbations. So what about asthma adherence? Um, uh, this paper came out at, uh, back in June or July, and this is from uh, the Propeller group. Propeller is an asthma sensor that links, that sits on your inhaler, um, that links to your a smartphone via Bluetooth and can capture actuations of your, of your asthma or COPD medicine. So the Propeller group has a large cohort of adults with asthma or COPD in this figure, there's about 8,000 uh, patients enrolled that are using these asthma sensors to capture adherence to asthma or COPD, uh, COPD therapy every day. Um, and so in this, group, uh, this figure, they show that uh, from January to March, there was a 15% relative increase in daily adherence to, to ICS among adults with asthma or COPD. Next slide. So the question in my mind is how does a pandemic, and I'm sure this is the same, a similar question to a lot of people on this call, how does a pandemic lead to decreased asthma healthcare services utilization? All right, so some potential hypotheses are maybe there are decreases in respiratory virus infection rates. So again, the group from CHOP looked at their, um, their viral respiratory testing among children who were admitted uh, prior to and post um, public health interventions indicated by that hash line. And you can see that for influenza A, influenza, influenza B seasons, they were waning by, by March 17, and they had varying patterns um, prior years. When you look on the right on C and D though, RSV and rhinovirus were, um, have these typical seasonal patterns uh, that were similar across years. 
looks like RSV was waning uh, by March 17, but if you look at the, uh, in figure D, the rhinovirus curve was near its peak. Um, so it looks like, um, and, and then they report that this was a significant decrease uh, from March through June. There's rhinovirus is the only virus that showed a significant decrease in, um, in virology testing levels seen at, seen at CHOP. So that's one potential hypothesis. The next one is maybe there's improved air quality. So with all of us staying home, less vehicle emissions um, and businesses being shut down, perhaps less industrial emissions, the group and CHOP also looked at improved potential air for potential air pollutants. So they looked at levels of NO2, ozone, uh, particulate matter, uh, 10 uh, micron and particulate matter 2.5 microns. And you can see in A that there really was no difference. They looked historically versus this year. Um, and they looked at the same periods. I'm comparing January to March and then March to May. And there, there was no significant differences in, in any of the air pollutants that they looked at. And in figure B, uh, it's just focusing on particulate matter 2.5, looking at the raster layer maps um, from Philadelphia. The blue dots show where all the air quality uh, testing sites are. And again, there seems to be uh, no significant difference um, in these four air pollutant uh, measures from, um, from after public health inter interventions were employed. Next slide. Some other potential hypotheses are that perhaps there's reduced outdoor or even school-based aeroallergen exposures. Um, I also think that uh, the fact that we kept children home from school in the spring, there, there was a uh, probably a big, a big influence of lack of infection from uh, kids not being in school and kids not sharing germs. Uh, maybe there's reductions in physical activity and therefore less a chance for exercise-induced asthma and, and asthma exacerbations. Perhaps families have a higher thresholds for using the emergency department during this pandemic and therefore a higher tolerance of risk uh, during the pandemic. So what can we do? Uh, what can you all do for asthma management during COVID-19? Uh, so the Quad AI COVID-19 Response Task Force uh, came together and released a statement in May, which was that children with persistent asthma should remain on their maintenance or controller therapy. And this includes inhaled corticosteroids, leukotriene receptor inhibitors, as well as any biologic therapy um, that, they, that they could be on. But it's currently not known whether ICS use alters susceptibility to COVID or the morbidity associated with it. And I'll go, I'll have a slide next to show you a little bit more detail on that. But really the current data and the emphasis is on current indicates that um, controller therapies are safe to use, recommend nasal and inhaled corticosteroids to manage asthma allergic rhinitis. It's probably even more important to use these medicines to prevent asthma exacerbations among poorly controlled rhinitis and uh, with sneezing um, and to use systemic corticosteroids when indicated for, for asthma exacerbations. Next slide. Again, we're focusing on use of ICS and asthma and COVID-19 and the broader message is, is keep calm and, and carry on. But there are concerns around the use of ICS in patients with asthma and COVID uh, that arise from the potential immunosuppressive effects in the lungs. Uh, so SARS, again, uh, targets a respiratory, epithelial, uh, respiratory infections through binding of the ACE2 receptor and alveolar epithelium. So this figure just depicts some, some putative positive and negative effects of ICS um, in COVID-19 infections. So on, there's a putative effect of an ICS on viral replication, showing the, the blockade of the NSP15 protein on viral RNA uh, replication or ICS could inhibit, um, has been shown to inhibit or downregulate the ACE2 um, and the TMPR or transmembrane, transmembrane protease receptors on alveolar cells. Uh, there's also potential for suppression of pro-inflammatory uh, cytokines, especially IL-6. There's also uh, a potential for promotion of bacterial infection and bacterial overgrowth. And there's a, a mixed effects on neutrophils and eosinophils, so promotion of neutrophils or inhibition of eosinophils. And there's a, a, a possible suppression of adrenal secretion through systemic absorption and then inhibition of release of cortisol or aldosterone. Um, but overall, the message is um, that inhaled corticosteroids so may confer some optimal protection against viral infections. 
and may sort of prevent eosinophilic related exacerbations. Next slide. So what does asthma management look like right now? Um, make sure uh, that children have an updated asthma treatment plan, uh, review adherence to asthma therapy. Um, Propeller will be coming as a clinical trial, clinical trial to some clinics and, and to children admitted to the ED and hospital. We're active, trying to actively recruit for that study now. Uh, review inhaler technique uh, repeatedly with, with your patients. Encourage trigger and voidus measures. Um, and then I'm touching on nebulization, which is an aerosol generating procedure that increases risk for COVID-19 aerosolization and infection transmission. So I'm gonna elaborate on that in the next slide. So administering asthma therapy, um, MDI or meter dose inhaler treatments are not aerosol generating. And so the CDC has said that nebulizer treatments and suctioning are identified as aerosol generating that require N95 masks. Um, and and this, is, this really cannot be done safely in the school nurse office, especially where, especially in Hartford, school nurses uh, tend to administer asthma therapy via NEBS um, daily. So meter dose inhalers are not associated with the same aerosolization risk and uh, should be used whenever possible. Um, there's an animation here if you could click next. And we've developed um, and how to use an inhaler with a spacer, um, how to if, if families want a copy of this or anybody on this, on this uh, meeting would like a copy of this, happy to distribute this. So conclusions are that COVID-19 may exacerbate asthma, but it's really not clear yet if having asthma is a risk factor for severe, for severe disease. There was one paper that just came out yesterday um, from South Korea in adults that looked that sh showed a slight increased risk for COVID-19 infection and morbidity mortali mortality among adults with asthma. Um, but that's the only one that's really shown that. Overall asthma exacerbations and ED visits are are generally down. Uh, and it looks like physical distancing, perhaps improved medication adherence and frequent hand washing, and I, and I forgot to add mask wearing, are reducing asthma exacerbations. And then continue your current asthma therapy. This is recommended by, again, the CDC, uh, GINA, the North American Consensus, ATS, the Quad AI, and, and CHEST. Um, and then again, avoid nebulized treatments. Meter dose inhalers are preferred um, during this time. So thank you. Thank you, Jessica. That was uh, truly outstanding. Really appreciate it. Uh, two great presentations from John and Jessica. So now let's go to the uh, Q&A and uh, we're gonna be joined by Dr. Mel Collins also on the, on the panel. So Mel, welcome to the uh, panel. Hello. How are you? So let's begin. Uh, this is a comment uh, by Dr. Spiegelman. And uh, Ken says, during the past month, our office obtained uh, unlimited number of nasal swabs for PCR testing. When a family calls with a child who has potential symptoms or exposure, we do a telemedicine and schedule a COVID test, um, strep if necessary. Uh, they do a drive up to the parking lot between 4.30 and 5 um, through the open car window. And families are very pleased with the easy access and availability. Uh, the, unfortunately, the test results are taking longer given the numbers. So Ken, that's really creative. Really appreciate what your team is doing. Truly, truly uh, innovative, fantastic, and the way, the way things should be done. So thank you, Ken. Uh, John, I don't know if you want to comment on that. Yeah, I do. Um, I think, it, you know, Ken, it's a great suggestion if we can get molecular-based, PCR-based um, places that can do kids uh, around the state better than we have currently. It's only going to enhance our ability to differentiate regular flu from COVID, from URI, whatever. So... I think it's a great idea. And I, I wish there were more stations that would be able to test kids this way. Thank you. And uh, coming from Nilda Fernandez to uh, Dr. Schreiber Ilbono. Thank you. Great presentation. <laughs> so we'll move on uh, to the next question. Uh, uh, Dr. Zemel asks, uh, and this will be a, the one for you, John, as well. Should we be pivoting back to uh, exclusive telehealth visits? I don't think we're there yet. Um, I think at the moment, even though we've had a huge spike in Connecticut, um, we're not like the rest of the country yet. So I think we still have the opportunity using careful PPEs, doing the risk screening we're doing verbally with patients, testing when we have to pre-op and things like that to continue on as we've been doing. But to Juan's earlier point, it mandates that we be very careful and assume that more and more of our patients could potentially be quietly 
COVID positive. And we need to understand that. There may come a point where community spread in Connecticut and New England becomes so severe like it was in the spring that we have to ratchet down a bit. Uh, probably not quite there yet. Now, I would say we are using telemedicine to screen some patients who might be high risk to see if they really need to be seen. For example, somebody who just came back from a hot spot that's much worse than us, who's quarantining for 14 days, can they just quarantine before they see us and that'll be safe? Or do they need to be seen immediately, in which case maybe we need to test or wear an N95 and full PPE? So I think telemedicine has an opportunity there to differentiate who needs to be seen right away or who can wait. Thank you. This is a question for both uh, Jessica and then Dr. Collins. Uh, please comment on spirometry testing in the outpatient setting. I think specifically that relates to uh, aerosolizing, uh, potentially aerosolizing procedures. So spirometry testing in the outpatient setting. Um, <clears throat> so if you are doing spirometry testing in your office, um, first of all, here at Connecticut Children's, we uh, do COVID testing on all patients who are doing spirometry because it is considered a high risk procedure. Additionally, if you're doing it in your office, if their COVID test is negative, we would recommend an N95 mask, gown, glove, and face shield, in addition to a surgical mask over the N95 mask. You need to follow proper cleaning procedures, which would be allowing the droplets to fall for 15 minutes and then proceeding uh, with a pretty intense cleaning. Um, so to me, that, that seems a little daunting to do in the more fast-paced um, pediatrician's environment. If you actually look at the guidelines from the American Thoracic Society, the only indication for spirometry currently is for patients where it would make a significant difference in their clinical management. However, due to the duration of the COVID-19 pandemic and our concern for our patients with chronic respiratory disease like asthma and cystic fibrosis, we're using this opportunity, which according to Dr. Schreiber seems to be like it's getting more and more fleeting, um, this opportunity of uh, lower rates to really get uh, the quantitative values we need from pulmonary function testing. If there's patients in the community that you have been doing spirometry on in your offices and would like them to come into Connecticut Children's, our pulmonary function laboratory is 100% available to do uh, the spirometry for you. Um, we do require the COVID testing, but we follow very safe procedures. We have excellent spacing of the patients. And I think that would be a lot easier than trying to attempt it in the middle of a busy P office. Thank you, Mel. Uh, the next one is for uh, both John and Jessica. In, uh, for both, it, it is hypothesized that exposure to germs helps develop a healthy immune system. What are your thoughts about long-term effects of children not being exposed to the typical amounts of uh, germs given the current physical distancing quarantine? I guess specifically would be, Jess, if you can comment on, on uh, a, a, you know, a year of not having been exposed to viruses, will that have an effect on, in your opinion, will that have an effect on asthma outcomes? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. And this really, this is the hygiene hypothesis, right? And and it's evolved to um, the good bugs versus bad bugs theory. And I, I, um, I don't know. I, I, I think right now we're seeing that, uh, especially with that nice that nice graph from from Chop looking at rhinovirus uh, decreased uh, decreased infections in rhinovirus. It looks like um, that might be a potential uh, pathway to decreased asthma exacerbations. I but I don't know what's gonna happen in, in next year. I predict that now that the kids are going back in school, we might see an uptick. And I think we're seeing that uptick right now in real time. Um, but long-term, I, 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 think, I, I think increased hand washing, um, decreased exposure to uh, respiratory uh, tract infections like rhinovirus, RSV could be, could be protective and, and be associated with decreased asthma exacerbations. John, Dr. Schreiber, what do you think? You know, I don't think we know. Um, it's a great question. Uh, we've never done this before. And so we're probably going to have less respiratory viruses the way they did in the Southern Hemisphere. And uh, maybe herd immunity to uh, RSV and some of the rhinoviruses will be less. Um, 
But I don't think overall, in terms of your immune system, it's going to affect that. I mean, if the amount of antigens you're exposed to just in the house, crawling on a floor if you're a toddler, whatever, are pretty enormous. I don't think anyone's immune system would be hurt. But I do think it's possible that we have a population that might be less immune to some of the minor respiratory viruses going around next year. It's possible. Thank you. And John, this is for you from, uh, from Bruce Cohen. And uh, any update on availability of supplies for Abbott, um, uh, ID, or Cepheid? Uh, I'm not sure if you know anything. <laughs> um, you know, um, Cepheid's clearly challenged. I mean, uh, we've been waiting for it for months, and I, I guess we, we've decided to go a different route. Um, so I think as more and more people get infected and testing ramps up, I'm sure there's going to be some shortages um, of variety, particularly of the um, the cartridges that some of the pre-made molecular testing are using. So that's the best I can say. I think there are probably going to be national shortages shortly. Great. Um, if, another question, which is uh, probably for the whole panel, and I'll, I'll modify it. How should poll workers be prepared for election day? Masks, of course, but N95 or addition of shields. So question about if you're going to be a poll worker, how should we, how should uh, you PPE? I think I would wear a Pappers probably, but John, what do you think? You know, I think um, you're going to want to wear a good mask. You're not going to wear a bandana. You're going to want to wear a surgical mask or one that we know is in the 90s in terms of prevention. Um, and I think, honestly, I'd probably wear gloves because you're going to be handling things that people give to you, whether it's a pen or whether it's a paper ballot or whatever. So, you know, and I'd have lots of hand sanitizer around. Other than that, um, you know, I would stay, not go uh, physically. I would try to stay distant from voters as best you can. So, I mean, common sense procedures. I think if you wear a mask and you're handling things with gloves and you use hand sanitizer when you change the gloves and you maintain some physical distance from people, you'll be fine. And, and Jessica, in, in your review of uh, existing literature, is there, is there, have you seen anything that masks uh, exacerbate asthma in, in children? No, no, I do. I have not seen any of that. And um, I, no. And, and, and Mel, I'll can you comment? Right <laughs> this, is a, this is a question that, uh, that parents often will ask, and, and even, even our team members. Uh, is, is there, if you have asthma, is there a problem wearing masks? Have you, what do you tell them, Mel? Did we lose her? You're muted, Mel. Sorry. Sorry about that. Uh, we 110% encourage every child to be masked. Wearing masks is not a new thing in pediatric pulmonary medicine. Our CF patients with declining lung function have been wearing masks for years for their protection have done well. If you look at the guidelines and lung association, they go so far as to tell you how to hook up your oxygen cannula under your mask for people with COPD. So if your lung function is so impaired that you can't tolerate wearing a mask, you need to seriously reconsider your presence in an area where a mask would be required because you must have incredibly impaired lung function. Thank you. Um, so bottom line, wear your masks. Uh, from uh, uh, Jamie Murray, uh, John, this is for you. Uh, it seems that there's a lot of screening for COVID for asymptomatic kids prior to admissions. Do we have a greater understanding of the prevalence of asymptomatic cases and their role in transmission? Uh, it's a good question. I think we know absolutely that asymptomatic um, individuals can spread. And in fact, some of the super spreaders are asymptomatic individuals. So absolutely, they can spread. The issue of small children, there's some controversy. I mean, there was one study, I think I showed you a couple of weeks ago, where the CDC documented a daycare center spread to adults in the community. And there's another paper recently that came out that found risk from children in daycare centers to the community overall was very, was very low. Now these are young kids. I think as you get older, um, then they're more likely to infect uh, adults and others. So, you know, there's some, some controversies around this, but there's no question that asymptomatic spreaders um, are well in the midst of this. And in fact, I showed you a couple of weeks ago as well, an asymptomatic individual who was test negative went into a family gathering, then got COVID, had COVID incubating and spread it to the whole family who never had symptoms. So um, absolutely, they can spread it. Thank you. We have a number of questions we won't be able to get to. It's, uh, it's nine o'clock. I want to take time to uh, uh, thank John for uh, what Dr. Chaudhry says here in the text uh, uh, for a terrifying but important information. <laughs> so 
I'm Thank sorry. <laughs> um, I, but uh, but obviously a message of hope as well. And uh, also, uh, uh, Jess, uh, thank you for your work. And uh, those figures were dramatic. And I think it begs uh, research in terms, perhaps if we can trigger, if we can tie the drop in asthma to a specific virus, maybe there's a vaccine for that one as well, perhaps rhinovirus. That's a, so thank you for your, your research, your work, your you know scientific acumen. And, and Mel, thank you for your practical notes on the care of asthma. Really appreciate it. So thank you, everyone. Please do stay safe. Uh, happy trick-or-treating. Do it distantly or don't do it at all. Do not eat candy that you don't know where it's coming from. Uh, buy your own. That would be my recommendation to you. We'll see you again on Tuesday for Grand Rounds and again next Friday for our uh, Ask the Ex Experts, if I can pronounce that. So take care. Be good. Be safe. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody.